0: Shalom. This is Gary Dershynski, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially. Because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B E T H. A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah, as I said, chapter 9. This is such a fantastic passage of Scripture. It's almost like you read it, and what more does there need to be said? But looking at chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, the Lord, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking, dwelling, living, that's what the word merely means to convey, people whose lives are dark, those that ha- whose lives are under distress and turmoil, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I mean, that is just such wonderful writing, it's those wonderful ideas. You know, this is a, such a fantastic passage. It comes within the broader context of Isaiah chapter 7 to 12. And this section is just a glorious section because it's the book of Emmanuel. It is the story of the one who would come, who would be called God is with us. So in chapter 7, we read of the birth of Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In chapter 8, we read about the land of Emmanuel, how the land would be invaded by the enemies of Israel. But whatever its or their intentions might be, ultimately the land will be spared because it's the land of Emmanuel's, it says in chapter 8. We're going to look at this portion of chapter 9, which deals with the character of Emmanuel. Who is this one whom Israel is to look for and to wait for? In chapter 10, we have the people of Emmanuel. And at the end of the chapter, you'll see how the Lord promises to regather his people. A highway will be constructed from Assyria in the north to Egypt in the south. And from the ends of the earth, as it were, from north to south, the Jewish people will come back into their land. And thus the people of Emmanuel are spelled out for us, Jews and Gentiles gathering around the king of Israel in chapter 10. In chapter 11, we have the glorious passage of the spirit of Emmanuel. That's where we light the candles every Shabbat. Because in Isaiah chapter 11, it says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of counsel and wisdom and knowledge and grace and the fear of the Lord. That was probably five, and there were probably two I missed. But there are seven, which denotes the fullness of the Spirit of God resting on the Messiah of Israel. And chapter 12 is praise for Emmanuel. Behold, God is our salvation. We will trust and we will not be afraid. So this is just a great section in all of the Word of God. Chapter 9, perhaps it is the pinnacle of it. Perhaps it is the height of this section. In this section, we have the names of Emmanuel. We're going to get to those names in chapter 9, verses 6, verse 7 or so. And those names reveal the very character and inner essence of Emmanuel himself. And this promise of his coming comes in the context of darkness that is resting upon the land of Israel. The Assyrians in the north are threatening to invade the land of Israel. This is written 750 years before the time of Messiah. The Assyrian empire is on the move. And when they strike, they will strike at the north. Because all of Israel's enemies always attack the land from the north. Unless they are the Egyptians or the Philistines in the south. It was the Assyrians that came down from the north. It was the Babylonians that came east up the Fertile Crescent and down from the north. It was the Persians who vanquished the Babylonians that came up over the her Fertile Crescent and down into Israel. It was the Greeks that came from the west, came from the north, and attacked down on Israel. It was the Romans that came from the west. And at the end of time in the book of Revelation, we are told that the nations of the world will gather their forces in the valley of Jezreel, in the valley of Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, in the north, in Galilee, attacking again from the north. So Isaiah writes, the people who are in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, these are the two tribes that settled in the north. What during the first century would be known as the area of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And Isaiah is telling them this is a land of darkness and gloom because there's always the threat of an impending attack. There's always the threat of an invasion on the land. There's always the possibility that what we have made for ourselves will be destroyed. Our children may be taken from us. Our land might be uprooted. All that we have saved might be taken and our very lives might be lost. A people living in darkness and distress and in turmoil. But what Isaiah says is that this people that have been in such disarray, he tells us, the people living in the land of darkness have seen a great light. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah is talking about the future. Isaiah is talking about something they will yet see, but he puts it in the past tense. They have seen a great light. Isaiah puts it in the past tense because it is so certain to occur that he writes about it 750 years before it already has occurred because he's so certain it will happen and the great light will appear. When the scripture speaks of great light we're to think about the Shekinah glory. We're to think about the glory presence of God. I understand metaphorically it can be thought of as light it can be thought of as joy. It can be thought of as rejoicing. But the significance of light is that it is the reflection of God's very presence. And that is nothing other than the Shekinah glory of God. God's glory which had, will be taken from Israel during the time of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 9 to 11, the theme is Ich kavod. Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. Ich The glory is departed and the Shekinah glory leaves the Holy of Holies during the time of Ezekiel. Not to return until Messiah himself is on the scene of history. The star in the north that the Magi had seen or in the east that the Magi had seen is nothing other than the Shekinah glory. The Greek word for star is simply burning object. And the Shekinah glory is a burning-looking object. Pillar of fire by night, cloud by day that led the Jewish people through the wilderness. The fire that had attracted Moses this weekend, the Parsha that is read in the synagogue is Shemot. These are the names of the very first verse of Exodus. And in the very early verses of Exodus, we read of God's call of Moses and as Moses goes into the wilderness after 40 years in the wilderness, he's going to have another 40 years in the wilderness. Don't tell me your life is hard until you've read about Moses, who spent 80 of his 120 years in the desert. And the other 20 years, or 40 years, he spent in Egypt. Those are all bad places to spend your life. But while in the wilderness, He saw a spectacle, a sight, a bush that was burning but was not being consumed. The Shekinah glory took up residence in this bush to attract Moses to it. When God shows up, he shows up in might and strength and his glory is made known. When the star appeared in the east, the Magi followed it, the Shekinah glory. And when it led to the place where Messiah was living, it hovered over that very house to lead them right to the place where Messiah at that point was two years old, but the area where Messiah was living at that time. Later in the life of Messiah, we find him on Mount Hermon. Some think Mount Tabor, I think Mount Hermon where Messiah is transfigured in all of his glory. And there the disciples saw him and beheld his glory. Here Isaiah is saying the people that dwelt in darkness have seen the glory of God. They didn't just see a light, they saw a great light that hovered in, of all places, Galilee of the Gentiles called of the Gentiles because that's where the Gentile nations attacked Israel from, unrelentlessly, time and time again, by the way of the sea, which was a trade route, the Via Maris that ran through the very land of the north, right through Galilee, and then into the remaining parts of Israel and along the coastal area. Isaiah is very specific about where this great light will be seen. That's why I'm spending so much attention to it his light would be seen in Galilee. Think of Yeshua's ministry. It was headquartered at Capernaum in Galilee along the Galilean coast. It was there that he raised individuals from the dead. Is that not a great light to behold? It was there where he taught some of the greatest lessons of his entire ministry, not least of which is the Sermon on the Mount. Is that not a manifestation of the very glory of God? It was there that he did some of his greatest miracles to astound those who saw him. It was there that he walked on water. It was there that he cast out legions of evil spirits from a man that was possessed of those that were part of the enemy's coalition. They saw a great light. This is a message of hope. Notice that Isaiah is not, how should I say it? He is not unrealistic about life. He's not like the Christian scientists among us that tell us, listen, the way to deal with your struggles is just look at them rightly. They don't really exist. So Christian science teaches that all is an illusion. And so therefore, when you're going through bad things, it's just an illusion. And somehow talk yourself into not experiencing the pain that comes with the experiences that we have. And we all have them. The other day, I got a phone call from one of my closest friends. Known him a very long time. And I love him and he is my brother in all respects. He's not my brother physically, actually. But as far as I'm concerned, he is my brother. I would do anything for him. And he does anything for me. And so he's struck with diabetes. And the other day he went in to have a, a, a exam report. And his doctor said he's beginning to see the deterioration of his vision. I called him. I couldn't even talk to him on the phone. I can feel inside the churnings that I'm just holding back as I'm even sharing this with you. And on the phone, he's saying, Gary, are you there? Gary, are you there? i said, oh, I am. <laughs> you know, I'm here. But I couldn't even talk because I love him so much. And I know he does. But when we experience those times, to try to talk ourselves, ourselves out of those things really affecting us is bizarre in the very best of descriptions. Some of us might try to go to these faith healers and these charlatans who tell you that if you pray over this napkin or this cloth that I'll send you in the mail if you're generous enough to give me enough to send it to you. If you're willing to put your hand on the television, all kinds of gyrations, your problems will go away. Know that it is a lie. Your problems will not go away. They won't go away because we are still in a world of sin and darkness and fallenness, much like the people of Israel as recorded in Isaiah chapter 9. We all one day will die. And some of us will die in a very horrific manner. Some of us will be fortunate enough to be spared. But the point is, this is a message of hope despite the pain. It's a message of hope because light has shined. From Isaiah's point of view, it's future, yet it's a done deal. From our perspective, it is past. And yet we live like He hasn't shined, or shown, or appeared. (laughs) We live like it really hasn't happened, but yet it has. When we go further in Isaiah chapter 9, he moves from what is to occur when Messiah first appears on the scene of history to what will happen when he returns in all of his glory. A great light has appeared, but it is nothing compared to what that light will be like when he comes in all of his glory. His glory was veiled because he took on human nature. And therefore, we couldn't see his glory as it genuinely exists unless he unveils his glory for us to see. And he did it on the Mount of the Transfiguration. But on the cross, it was gravely veiled. And we saw him and read of his death. But as his resurrection, we see him again manifested in a glorious appearance. But one day he will return. And he said to the high priest, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And thus, when he first appeared, there was a great light. But when he comes again, there will be a light unlike any other. Zechariah tells us, though it is day, we won't even know it is day because it is so bright. And when it is dark, it is still so bright. It is a day, he says, that is unlike days as we know them. Because the glory of God will permeate our world. And it will permeate our world because this one appears. Look at verse 6. He tells us, unto us a child is born. Of course, the child must refer back to a child that Isaiah has already mentioned. He mentioned him in Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin conceived child who would be God with us, Emmanuel. A child is born and a son is given. Those two phrases are really interesting. Because while we understand at this time of the year, Messiah, as a child who is born, he is a son who is given at the same time. That is to say, his origins are not at Bethlehem. Though as a child, that's where he was born. His origins are from of old, from everlasting, Micah 5.2 tells us. In other words, his origins are of an eternal nature. And it's interesting because when Messiah speaks of himself, this is what he always draws our attention to. He doesn't say, for example, that the Father has born me at Bethlehem. He says the Father has sent me into the world. Where did he send him from? He sent him from heaven, not from Bethlehem. In other words, he was born at Bethlehem, but he comes from heaven. He says, I am from above. He doesn't say, I'm from Bethlehem. I am from above, but you are from below. He is a child born, but he's more than that. He's a son who is given, given by God himself from the very presence of God to us. For what purpose? On the one hand, for the purpose of bringing about redemption. And thus John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he's also a son, not only given and born, but a son who would be given so as to die. He's given so that he might reign, but he was given so that he might die. He's a child, and yet at the same time, he's the very son of God. The term son of God God is oftentimes misconstrued. We have to remember this is the king of Israel. This is the descendant of David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the promise is made to David, the term son means king that would reign on your throne, David. When he's called the son of God, it means to heighten his royalty, his kingliness, and his right to sit on David's throne. As a child born, he would die, and as a son given, he will come to reign on David's throne. Whatever the darkness we face, he's coming to reign on David's throne. Whatever pain you may be experiencing physically or otherwise, he's coming to reign on David's throne. Whatever physical maladies you may be facing, he's coming to reign on David's throne. Whatever financial anguish you are presently experiencing because of the economic duress in our nation, he's coming to reign upon his throne. In other words, our vision must be toward what the Lord is going to do, not on what we are struggling and suffering with, though those things are very real in our lives. Notice what the text says. They saw a great light. question I ask myself is, what am I looking for? Am I looking at my adversities, but am I also looking at the great light that has already appeared? The way to deal with our struggles is to keep our focus on the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. On the Lord, who is yet to come to reign and to vanquish all of the suffering, all of the heartache, and all of the trials and struggles we go through. We may not have them lifted from our shoulders today, but they will be lifted from everyone's shoulders when he comes again. And because of who he is, he can empower us today to endure the struggles that we have. That's why we are given his names. Look at what it says in chapter, verse 6. This is what he will be called. Now, some have said, wait a minute, you're talking about Yeshua, you're talking about Jesus. Jesus was never called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He never was called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. We have to remember we're talking about the king of Israel. Look what it says before. The government will be on his shoulders. Look what it says in verse 7. The increase of his government and peace will be to no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. We're talking about a king. And kings were given enthronement names in addition to their names given at birth. So we know Solomon was given the name Jedidiah by one of God's prophets. Take a look at this, chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. David had more than one name, although I bet you never thought of him having multiple names. Ah, there it is, 2 Samuel. These are the last words of David. Look at his names. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. Those were his enthronement names that revealed his character as Israel's king. These are Messiah's enthronement names that manifest his character as Israel's king. Look what he's called. He's called the Wonderful Counselor. Now notice this. Just look back at these four names. There are certain parts of the name that are the permanent aspects of his name, and then there are aspects of his names that are sort of variables. The permanent aspects of his name is, number one, he's the counselor. He's God. He's Father. And he's the Prince. But the variables are, he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He is the peacemaking prince. Now when you look at this first word, wonderful counselor, the Hebrew word here is pele yoel. Wonderful counselor. But the word pele means one who does extraordinary things. Wonderful doesn't quite capture this. He does extraordinary things. He does miraculous things. He does things that are beyond our expectation. The word appears when the angels appear to Abraham and Sarah. And the angels say, one of them he addresses as the Lord, this time next year you will have a son. And so what does Sarah and Abraham do? They laugh. This isn't going to happen. And what does God say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard is the word Pele. Is there anything too extraordinary that the Lord cannot do? Is there anything too wonderful that is beyond God's doing? Is there anything too supernatural in nature that God cannot do? That's what he's saying to Abraham and Sarah. Later, David will write... And in Psalm 139, he will say, the Lord knows me from my very conception. He knows the fullness of who I am from beginning to end. Such thoughts, David says, is too much for me. The word is Pele. They're too extraordinary for me. They're too supernatural. They're too outrageous for me. One of our favorite, well, my favorite, judges is Samson. He's one of my favorite judges because he teaches me a great deal about what to beware of. He's a man that started out great and finished horribly. Except for God's grace in him destroying the Philistines that were partying around him. But he started out as a Nazarite. He started out as one whose birth was predicted by the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's father, Manoah, and tells him, you're going to give birth, or your wife is going to give birth to a son, he's to be a Nazarite. He's not to touch anything that Nazarites are not to touch, drink, or eat. And then Manoah says, he's so blown away by this. He makes an altar, he sacrifices on the altar. And then he says to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And he says, how can I tell you my name? It's too Pele for you. It's too wonderful. I can't tell you who I am because my character is so beyond what you would understand and comprehend and then the angel of the Lord actually dives into the flame of the offering and ascends back into heaven. Would that not be weird? I mean, you really would be questioning, what have I been, well, what medications, you know, may I have been taking at the time? But the point is, the name Pele appears in those contexts and that's what it means here. He's an extraordinary one. Who will do beyond our wildest imaginations, even to the point of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child who would be God with us? And he is not just wonderful, but a wonderful counselor. You need guidance, you need direction, you need a sense of what am I to do with this, whatever it might be in your life. He's the wonderful counselor that can guide and direct. His teaching ministry in the land of Israel reveals his wisdom. He knows what is already in the thoughts and hearts of your mind. He knows what you need even before you ask, as he says. He's the one that Nathanael was blown away by when he said to Nathaniel, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. He knows everything. And thus, he can be the extraordinary supernatural aid to what we need to know. He's not only that. The scripture says he's El Gibor. Everywhere in the book of Isaiah where the word El is used, it's only used of God. There are other places in the Bible where it is not, but in Isaiah, it's always God. And when he's made reference to as El Gibor, almighty God, it's a reference to the living God of Israel. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. And thus, Not only can he be our extraordinary counselor when we need guidance, but he's the mighty God that can empower us to do what we need to do to bring him honor and glory and to do what is most beneficial for the world around us. He's not only El Gabor, but he is also Avi Ad father of eternity. Now this is kind of weird and I can't take too much time here. But when he uses the term father, he doesn't mean to confuse the distinctions of the persons in the Godhead. The word father here means to convey the idea he is the creator, the originator, the upholder, the maker of all of time. He's the one that can convey everlastingness to us. And all of us do possess some kind of everlastingness. And one day when our lives here come to an end, we will live everlastingly apart from our God and creator or we will live with him forever. And that is, Ultimate destiny is determined by one simple, I say simple, but a very complicated and involved reality. But to us, simple acknowledgement and association. And that is that the one who will come, who was the light that was seen in Galilee, who gave his life for us, would be accepted by us. So he's the creator of all of time. And he's the one that can convey everlasting life to you in its fullest sense. Not just in terms of longevity, but in, in, the, in terms of quality and meaningfulness. Not only here, but in the life to come. Messiah said, all who give up everything in this life will receive a hundredfold and much more in heaven when we are with him. What we do here really does matter for a whole lot more time than the time we are experiencing here. And thus that perspective is critical to who we are And what we will experience and what we will become in all of eternity. And lastly, he tells us, he is Sar Shalom. He's the ruler of peace. He says, a peace I give to you, not as the world gives. But my peace I give to you. There isn't anyone who doesn't desire that. There isn't anyone that would withhold or withstand or resist, maybe that's a better word, resist the invitation of our Messiah, who says, come unto me, all of you who are weary. I will give you rest. That's to whom we must come or go. (laughs) That is the one we must connect with. Now, in closing, let me say this. I heard a teacher on the radio draw this, this uh, point out, and it struck me uh, significantly. You know, in Greek, the word that is used, there are different words, but one of the words used to see is the word scopus. We get the word scope from it. So a Telescope is an instrument that enables us to see things way out there. I can tell you I have in my garage a telescope that another one of my closest friends who's gone on to be with the Lord, who taught me sailing and invested so much of his later life in my own. He was a renaissance man. He was a retired captain in the Navy. He was a public health officer. He retrieved drug running boats, sailboats, that drug runners would use to bring in drugs from wherever. And he would retrieve them and sail them back to be refurbished and used at the Naval Academy for midshipmen to learn how to sail. He was a really neat guy. And while he was living in New York, Staten Island, he started getting interested in understanding the stars and astronomy. So he decided he would build himself a telescope. Now, he worked as a jeweler. He worked as one of these elect- electrical guys that put on those high-power w- lines. I mean, this guy did so many things. He was a hang glider. He was a pilot. I mean, he was an amazing guy. <laughs> and he, as a jeweler, he, what he did was he took one of those cardboard rolls that you roll up carpet with, And so he took one of those rolls and he cut it. That was going to be his tube. And then he hand polished the mirrors that would be used in order to reflect the light. And then he took weights, you know, like from dumbbells. And then he welded these various pipes to make the stand and the counterbalances. And he put this whole thing together. And he's telling me about this. And he said, you know, Gary, I built a telescope that can read a newspaper Five miles away. I said, Bill, man, you know, you can tell me a lot of things, but that one is not making it, you know. He said, I'm telling you, I really did. Sure, I know, I know. So one day he said, Gary, come on over. I took the telescope out of the garage. So I come over to his house. He's got the telescope up and he says, Take a look. I look inside the telescope and I said, okay, so what am I looking at? And he said, ah, now you see the house that's across the street, and he had a big frontage of property, then he had the street, then another big frontage of property, and there's the house. He says, you see the door on the house? I said, got the door. And he said, the door is hung on the side post of the door by a hinge. And the hinges are connected to the door by a screw. And in order to put the screw in the door, you have to take the screwdriver and put it into the slot in the screw. You're looking inside the slot of the screw. So I'm going like this. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm telling you, you are. Then you remember when the comets were flying around, hail bop and all that kind of stuff? We took, the, we took it out. It was somewhat cloudy by us, but the moon appeared. He hit the moon with his telescope. We look at it, and he says, you know what you're looking at? I said, whatever you tell me, that's what I'm looking at. He said, you're looking inside a crater on the moon. I was blown away. When I came here, his wife had passed away. We had the service. She said, Gary, you can take anything you want of my my husband's, anything you want. I took the telescope. I said, that's what I want. I've got it there. One day we'll take it out and we'll see what we see. The word scope means to view. And when you add the preface episcopus, it means you look at something intently and with great deliberation. Now, the word episcopus is what we get the word bishop from. Now, you know the churches known as Episcopuses churches? You know what I'm talking about? Episcopal churches? They're Episcopal churches because they are ruled, led by bishops or overseers. An overseer or a bishop or an Episcopus is to look intently on the flock and to be looking for the flock's needs. And to be ready to serve the flock wherever the flock is in need. Isn't that kind of cool? It's a word that's used about visitation. When it speaks of God visiting his people. He's episcopising. When he visits us, he's looking intently at your life. He's looking at your deepest needs and desires. For the scripture says he gives us the desires of our hearts. And when Peter says that we are watched over by the shepherd and bishop of our souls, he's watching out for us intently. When we think of the Parsha that is read, when God speaks to Moses, he says, I have heard the cries of my people in Egypt and I have seen their affliction. And I've come down to deliver them. God knows everything good, bad, and indifferent about your life. And he hears your cries. And he sees your needs. And he episcopuses you. And he comes to visit you, to meet you where your need is. That's not to say he takes away all of our suffering because some of us need to suffer. Oh, I know we don't like to hear that. I certainly don't. But if we suffer with him, Paul says, we will reign with him. When Messiah came into the world, he came in as the suffering servant. But he'll meet your need. He'll go through every step of the way with you. And he'll be that one who is the very episcopus of your soul. He will visit you and bring you through. He came to Mary and said, Through the angel, you are highly graced of God. Why? Because the Lord is with you. When you read of Zechariah's great. Expression of joy at the birth of his son. Read it carefully. There's not a word, or maybe one word, about his son. If it was me, I'd be going crazy, and I did when Joel came into our lives. But Zechariah's prayer is all about God visiting him and his people. It's not the birth of the son, it's the manifestation of God. So I end where I started. The people in the land of distress saw a great light. So what are you looking for? Are you looking at your sorrows? Or are you looking at the great light? Are you looking at the world around us, which we wish had ch- would change and be a place of peace? Or are you looking at the Savior, who is a wonderful counselor? the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Are you looking at the trials and disappointments that you have, that I have? Or are we looking at the one who is the very overseer of our souls? If we have our eyes on the wrong things, we will go in the wrong direction. But if we have our eyes on the right person, we will never lose our way. And the way to look at the Savior is by reading his word, reflecting on what he has done, and as the scripture says, committing yourself to him. And he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So, whatever your need is, bring it before Him, for He's our wonderful counselor. Whatever your need is, He is the mighty God. Whatever your need is, He's the Father of eternity. Whatever your need is, He's the Prince of Peace and can bring that peace to bear upon you, no matter how heavy the Lord, Let's pray. Our God and Father, what a wonderful name your Son bears for us. Complicated things in this passage. But in the final analysis, Lord, it is to you that we must come. It is you that we must see. It is you that we must follow. It is you, O Lord, that we must embrace we are a people like Israel of old who often sit live in a world of distress we live a life that is hard sometimes dark sometimes gloomy in nature but Lord you are the light that can lighten up our souls in the midst of the darkness my prayer is that our attention would be drawn to you O oh lord and that our hearts would be given to you as well for we pray in messiah's name amen thank you for listening to our message we hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the lord and your service to him do remember us in your prayers